Welcome to AquaFarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of AquaFarm, ETSU's Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy. I'm once again joined by Maya Leva from the Inova Shar Cancer Institute, and also she is associate professor of pharmacy practice at West Coast University School of Pharmacy. We're going to talk about uh, some LGBTQ cancer pearls. Welcome back to the pod, Maya. Thank you so much for having me, and happy Pride. Yes, uh, happy Pride, Maya. Uh, let's start with um, how I typically end most uh, podcasts and saying that dosing matters. So let's talk about some oncology dosing implications uh, in this community. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because this comes up a lot, obviously, uh, just as you said, dosing matters. We're dealing with a number of drugs that have a very narrow therapeutic index. Um, and quite frankly, I, you know, I tell people all the time that I'm dispensing little bits of harm every day uh, with the intention, of course, making somebody better. Uh, so one of the things that's really important to consider, especially when we're talking about transgender, gender non-conforming, non-binary persons who are uh, actively on gender-affirming hormone therapy. And so we talked a little bit about this before in terms of, you know, for trans women, that may include, generally includes androgen deprivation therapy, as well as estradiol. And then for trans men, of course, that's going to include um, testosterone. Uh, and sometimes we'll give uh, progesterone as well if the person's having kind of breakthrough monthly bleeding. Um, but generally speaking, you know, these are the medications that patients are receiving. And some of the things that we know now after a lot of retrospective data, but still not enough, because uh, again, this is an area of controversy, is that your, your body conformations start to change after being exposed to uh, these different hormones. And that is definitely reflected in things like serum creatinine. Uh, so, you know, kind of back to the point about dosing matters, um, we want to make sure that we're dosing patients appropriately based on their affirmed identity if they've been receiving six months or longer um, gender-affirming hormone treatment. Okay, so so let's say you've got a um, you've got a uh, what's an example? Somebody who's going to require carboplatin. Okay, say they've been on gender-affirming hormone therapy for for eight months. Okay, then you go with their the the, uh, the the gender that they identify with at that time. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, and we know this, um, there was actually, uh, you know, there are some publications out there. There was a, um, Collister et al actually published in 2021 that kind of confirmed, for example, with serum creatinine, that those changes after gender affirming, uh, affirming hormone therapy in trans men, creatinine actually increased by 0.05 to 0.1 milligrams per deciliter. And then there was a corresponding decrease uh, for trans women. So, you know, again, we have fairly good data now supporting, uh, that practice. Yeah. Now, what would you do if it's three months of gender affirming therapy? So unfortunately, again, because we, right now we have this magic cutoff of about six months. And, and again, that's based on, you know, kind of collected, uh, data that person would need to be dosed based on the sex assigned at birth. Um, and, you know, generally, generally these things don't necessarily come up with patients, uh, you know, certainly when we are doing like chemo education and things like that, we don't necessarily talk to patients about like how we're going to dose them. Um, you know, we'll talk, I know in the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit more about some more sensitive things that we need to discuss with patients. Um, but generally speaking, you know, you just want to make sure that the pharmacy, nursing providers, anyone who is involved in caring for this patient recognizes that at that six month period, you need to change the way you're dosing a patient. Yeah. 
Let me, so a couple things that came to mind in this scenario, I just made up, you know, three months of gender affirming therapy, um, is, you know, maybe you split the difference between, you know, a 15% correction, um, or maybe you do like a seven and a half percent correction, or, you know, if it's depending on the regimen, if you really need an accurate mm-hmm. serum creatinine, uh, or a creatinine clearance to do a 24 hour, you know, a 24 hour creatinine mm-hmm. clearance, like it's done in children oftentimes, uh, would, would maybe be some things if you really, really wanted that dose to be as accurate as possible. It, it, exactly. Right. Because when we're talking about creatinine clearance, we're not just talking about creatinine, right. We're talking about which formula are we going to use? What, what ideal body weight, um, in some cases, depending on your institution, are you going to use? And so again, you know, for now, we don't really have an in-between kind of, you know, way to, to support that transition. We just know that at that six months, that magic six months, you know, that's kind of where we're going to go. Yeah. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you're a, an oncology pharmacy PGY2 program director, and you have a large transgender population, whenever, you know, you hear uh, Maya talk about, we don't have evidence. That means there's a, there's a, there's a research gap. If people are able to fill that in, there's publications to be done and good work to be done there. Uh, all right. So Absolutely. Let's, tra- let's transition to another scenario and I'll give you uh, an individual um, a reflection here. Several months ago, we had a, a, a lesbian couple who I was doing some chemo education to. And uh, it was a young, uh, young female patient of childbearing potential. And uh, I did not engage in the typical counseling that I t- usually would do about embryo fetal toxicity um, because of, you know, some of that uh, assumption or bias on my part that it wasn't necessary. And part of it, that was maybe 80% of it, 20% of it was time and the patient's poor prognosis and that Mm -hmm. this therapy, you know, was probably not going to provide them months or years sort of a thing too. So, so what would you say to somebody, you know, like me in that situation, uh, why not to do what I did and, and how to have that, that kind of sensitive discussion? Sure. Well, you know, I think, um, I sort of approach that sensitive discussion as I do with any sensitive discussion, right? Um, so establishing just, again, information about the person, you know, what their life goals are, uh, as we would do for any, you know, couple or any person, I think is a good place to start. And I think we do get caught up in this assumption that, oh, you know, if a person's in a gay couple, for example, or same-sex relationship, you know, they can't get pregnant accidentally, right? <laughs> Um, and so, oh, that's not something that we necessarily need to cover beyond, you know, some of the sexual health counseling that we may do, um, you know, in terms of using barrier protection, things like that, just, in, you know, to protect uh, partners from kind of toxic uh, chemo, right? Um, but I think, again, it's just important to ask and, and to say, you know, if you'd like, you know, I don't know what your goals are for, uh, for family or, you know, for uh, reproduction, but, you know, I'd if you would like to, if you're open to it, I'm happy to discuss with you, you know, some of the ways in which we can enable that um, process for, you know, happening. Because again, uh, same-sex couples can do in vitro fertilization. And, you know, there are a whole number of different options uh, for those persons. And also, you know, when we talk about fertility preservation, um, especially for younger patients of childbearing age, and, and, you know, this goes for, uh, trans persons too, right? So again, a trans person may still have the components that can be used for reproduction and they should absolutely be offered uh, the option for like cryopreservation, whatever uh, whatever other 
you know, services are provided. And I think, you know, trying to, again, use the language that patients are using uh, to describe their family, uh, themselves, you know, that includes pronouns, right? Um, that's, that's very helpful. Trying to avoid things that are very gendered or, or heteronormative terms to the extent possible um, will also kind of help guide that discussion. And also, you know, I want to just throw this out there too. It's okay to mess up um, and it's great to apologize. Patients really do appreciate that. And, you know, it creates again, a safer space for them to give you more information. Yeah. And that would be part of building rapport and trust with, with patients. Um, one of the things that we do with, with our students in our communications course is we, a couple different tools we use. One is kind of a, like a forecasting approach and one is a ubiquity statement. And the forecasting is, you know, I'm about to talk about something that, that may be a little bit sensitive, you know, there's, you know, I'm not engaging on this willy nilly. I'm, this is important, but it could be sensitive. And I don't mean to offend when I ask whatever. The other is a, a ubiquity statement, which is something like, this is something that we ask all people of childbearing potential to, to make it seem so it's not, uh, it's not, um, you know, it doesn't feel inquisitive or targeting, but this is just standard of care we do for everybody. The same way you might, you talk about, and we'll get an HIV test on you because we do that for everybody due to national guidelines or whatever it may be. So those are some communication tips that we do for, for lots of things uh, for our students. Um, anything else with regards to sexual health, any other clinical pearls? Yeah, you know, I think um, one of the things that's really important, this kind of feeds back into sort of a general discussion that we've had even about cancer screening in the, the previous podcast. And, um, and, and this one is, you know, getting, uh, collecting sexual orientation and gender identity data is essential for health systems. Um, and along with that also, you know, we talk a lot about social determinants of health and, and those are very much connected. And you kind of ha can't have one without the other, right? Particularly for these historically marginalized communities. Um, but I think getting that data, doing appropriate organ inventories with patients, making that the norm um, will then help other clinicians who are taking care of a patient in a multidisciplinary setting do the right things every time, right? So, you know, again, when you're talking about, um, you know, person's childbearing potential, all of that really understanding, oh, that person's already had a total hysterectomy, um, you know, or, oh, that person's already had an oophorectomy. That helps too, right? That, that helps kind of drive some of that um, joint decision-making. You know, one other thing too, when we are doing chemo education, for example, um, and sometimes we're getting consent at the same time, it's always important to get consent about getting consent. <laughs> and so one of the things that I always do is I, I ask patients, you know, is it okay if I talk to you about some of these things? And then I kind of give them a upfront, you know, some of the things I'm gonna talk to you, again, like you talked about maybe intimate questions or sensitive. Also, one other thing I wanna point out, make sure that the person is out to all the people who are in the room. So for example, um, I think we see this a lot more in pediatric care. Uh, so, you know, a, a child may be out to their care team, but not out to their parents. Um, or, you know, again, that, that can exist in different configurations for adults as well. So making sure to understand, like, who's with you? You know, is it okay if I talk about sensitive things with this person? That, that gives them an opportunity to, you know, exit the room or, or have a, a follow-up private conversation with you. Um, and that is especially important within the LGBTQ plus community because making assumptions about who is with someone can, can actually be really um, 
harmful. Absolutely. That's, that would be a, um, a path toward marginalization for, exactly. I, you know, I think of a, you know, a, a kid in that, in that scenario. Is there, you know, is, are there any electronic health records that are not, you know, dichotomous with, with how they, um, uh, document gender? Yeah. And, you know, uh, yeah. The, the scenario you, you described as like, well, in a very close knit treatment team, I can see how uh, they can be on the same page, but once that gets in the medical record, it seems like a document could go to a referral center or something like that. And, um, you know, you lose control of, of the, uh, the patient's privacy pretty easily, I could see. Yeah, so that's actually a great question. And one that I think is still being explored. So I know that within the last few years, for example, in Epic, you can collect a person's uh, SOGI data. And that also includes, you know, their, um, unfortunately, we still in uh, EHR systems often use uh, preferred name, but really the, the correct term is affirmed name. Um, you know, so there are options usually for what a person prefers to be referred to as, you know, what their sex assigned at birth is, if they need that, if they're still in that process of transitioning. Um, so you're right. There is an opportunity for accidental outing um, within my chart, you know, my health online, all of those things, anyone who has access to that particular person's uh, data. So, you know, I think this is an evolving question and one that, you know, I think as a society, we're going to kind of have to figure out how we're going to address. Um, yeah, and because certainly. again, yeah. And certainly addressing that would go to, to help minimizing the marginalization status. Absolutely. Um, so, so Maya, uh, you've given us a lot of great uh, clinical pearls here for, uh, for, for these, uh, for these uh, cancer patients. Are there any resources that you would, mm-hmm. uh, you would like to highlight uh, for, for listeners who maybe want to learn more about this or, or say, uh, you know, they're like, oh, that's interesting, but I don't, I don't really see those types of patients. And six months from now, of course, they, they will. Um, you know, where would they go for more information? Yeah, well, fortunately, there are um, there aren't any huge repositories for information, but we certainly have access to a number of resources. So I had mentioned in a previous podcast, the LGBT Cancer Network, uh, they have a variety of really good opportunities for learning, um, you know, even just understanding basic terms around gender identity, expression, health equality. Uh, the Human Rights Campaign has a variety of different resources on their website. One other option too is, you know, UCSF provides uh, transgender uh, care guidelines um, and they also have a lot of other LGBTQ plus, uh, you know, resources available. And, you know, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of resources are very helpful for clinicians and, and ultimately to find better resources for patients. Because, you know, I think I mentioned this in the HOPA talk too, that when we are providing support for patients, we they're often very gendered or they're very, you know, kind of heteronormative, right? And we want to make sure that this patient population is supported during what is already a very difficult journey in their cancer care. Thank you. Thank you. Well said, Maya. Well, thank you so much for joining uh, for these two uh, podcasts. And uh, it was nice to get to know you. And, and uh, you brought some great information that was uh, badly needed to be shared uh, in a wider scale. So thank you for, for joining. Well, thank you so much for having me.